This is Wayne McCullough reporting in from Dallas, Texas with Simple Talk Radio. Very excited to have my guest on today, Ryan Parrott. As you know, on the Simple Talk, we focus on faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. Ryan is going to address a lot of those today with a lot of the nonprofit work he does. Ryan is a decorated Navy SEAL, decorated Navy SEAL sniper, um, does carry a Purple Heart. I'm not going to get too deep in his background because that's why we're here today. So Ryan Birdman Parrot, I should say. I have a hard time calling him Ryan, which I think no one calls you Ryan probably, besides maybe your mother. <laughs> I don't think uh, half the people know that my name is actually Ryan. <laughs> and I think we will get to probably the Birdman story today and how that became, how that came about. So, but it's been it's been a fun venture in my life getting to know the Birdman, and, and the work he's doing is epic. I serve on one of his nonprofit boards that we'll talk quite a bit about. So, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, as I like to say, and, and I said Ryan's decorated. He, I could not do too much on his background because he doesn't want me to talk about it. So um, the the number of medals and, and rewards and awards he has been given by the U.S. government. So, but I'm proud to know him. I love veteran causes. My grandfather was a veteran, um, actually was a mechanic and test pilot, which wasn't the best job. Um, but he did enjoy that he could work on his own planes when he saw problems. Uh, so, but Birdman, why don't you give us a little of your background, Detroit, et cetera, and then we'll kind of jump into, as I said earlier, really, most people in life have some experience that changes their life. And so we'll touch on that today and what things look like before and after that, and then we'll get to where you are today. So, Sure. Well, this is awesome. Uh, being able to tell our story, um, it's a big deal. You know, anytime somebody gets gives you the opportunity to be up on a podium or, or whatnot, you can use your voice to either do something for the greater good or for personal gain. Um, and what we do with charity in that, it just gives us this bigger opportunity to tell the masses what we're up to and how we can help and how everybody can help. So it all started for me in Detroit. Um, I say it started in Detroit. I was born in Detroit um, and not one of those outsiders. I was legitimately born in Detroit in the heart. And, you know, obviously you can stay there for a couple of years and then everybody seems to shift to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, I was raised Catholic. Uh, both my parents were Catholic, grandparents were Catholic, crosses, rosaries, you name it, all over the place, every house. Um, we moved to the suburbs and, you know, I always had great parents. Every step of the way, my parents always parented me. But there was this disconnect in my life where I just had no interest in moving forward in life. I was stuck in this purgatory of, I, I wouldn't even call it denial. It was just, I didn't care about anything. And for years from elementary school all the way through junior year of high school, I failed, I think every subject at one point or another. Mm. My dad kept a report card that has F's and D's and even I didn't even know what NC was, but non-complete. Like, you can't even complete the class. So I, don't, <laughs> I didn't really skip school. I don't know how you get so low, but that was it. Now, in Michigan, we play hockey. It's much like, you know, Texas, it's, it's football here. We play hockey. So I played hockey, played for a lot of cool teams. That was really my, my fun in life. And then just being purely a screw-up. It was, I never get in trouble with the law, but I never, I just didn't do what anybody asked of me. And... So it just becomes this deal where you move from parents' house to parents' house. My parents were divorced when I was five. Um, they continued to parent me alongside each other, co-parent me. 
but I would move from parents' house to parents' house, uh, to new school districts, you know, and so forth, and even to my grandparents' house. So it was very difficult for me along the way to make friends. Um, I would make a one friend here, one friend there, and for a long time I was just one of those cats who would kind of hide out in my own, do my own thing, internalize everything, and just keep to my own thoughts. Um, and I think it was very effective for what I did moving forward in life, but it's not so much fun growing up when you can't, mm. when you don't even know what friendship really means. So that's today why I collect people. I have friendships. I love my friendships. Um, I don't do anything without a team, which is how we snuck you onto the team. And, you know, you see somebody in your life, as, I always say this to my buddies, you know, you see the girl that you like someday and then you want to make her your wife and you just know her from the get-go um, and you go after her and we'll... I do that with friends, too. Yeah, so let me interject there two things. At my rehearsal dinner, you wouldn't know this, but I, the first thing I said was I collect friendships huh. and friends. Two, I had vowed to not serve on any more boards or not get involved in any more nonprofits the day you asked me. <laughs> and you, I don't know if you remember that. I told you, I said, I just told my wife I'm out on everything, and then you asked me to serve on the Bird's Eye View, and I basically said yes immediately. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you're good at that. Uh, I definitely want to touch back on that because yeah. I want to tell that story. So, you know, trying to figure out who I am as a person and what I do offer the world or do offer just anything, it was very difficult. So I go back to just failing everything in school. Well, I finally go to high school. I move in with my mother. Um, I was failing every subject, and my dad was like, you know what, we've got to change something here because you're just not, you're not progressing at all. So I went to this high school. I uh, started and... I think after the first year, I was pulled into the principal's office, and he was saying, and he was a Navy pilot, and he said, Ryan, you're just, you don't want to progress, you know, and I understand, you just, this isn't for you, so what we're going to do is uh, release you on a worker's release program where you can go work in an industry in Detroit Automotive or one of these deals, but we're just going to let you leave so you can go work. That didn't even phase me, hmm. and I wasn't a punk, it just didn't, it just kind of bounced off me, went back to being a screw-up. Um, and I got threatened by my parents at one point in time to, <laughs> they were going to send me to military school. It's kind of funny that I would end up joining the military myself yeah. on my own accord. Um, uh, but it was junior year of high school. We had a motivational psychology teacher, um, Tom Barnes. He is, a, um, Vietnam Marine and everything he talked about was Marine Corps. And he has so much pride in our community, our country. The flag stood tall in his, in his room every single day. He would make us recite the national anthem or the pledge of allegiance um, and everything was Marie Corner's office. So it was really about pride in America and the things that you want to see in the school systems. Um, and so that's all I knew. I mean, both my grandfather served in World War II, one Navy, one Army, but they didn't talk about their stories. So I had no background of what military looked like. He comes before us in class one particular day. Now, this guy's boisterous, right? He's 100 miles an hour. He's six foot five. He's a lengthy guy. He wears these still Marine Corps bifocals, these super thick Benjamin Franklin style deals. And he's just 100 miles an hour spaz. Um, and he runs around with the American flag screaming. But one particular day, he stops and he just holds the flag and he says, There's only one thing better than the Marine Corps, and that's the U.S. Navy SEALs. I stopped and I listened to him. I turned and I said, What did he just say? Like, there's. I didn't even know there was anything besides the Marine Corps. And there's something better than his beloved Corps. Might as well take a look. And so I listened to him talk about how these guys just do these unbelievable things. And I was so drawn to this conversation. So I stayed up for class and said, Mr. Barnes, that's what I want to do. and be a Navy SEAL. And he violently laughed in my face. Mm. And I was like, can you do that? You're a teacher. Can you mm. laugh at a student? He's like, buddy, 
you want to go through the toughest military training that this world has to offer, and you're not even passing my class, and it's an elective. I was like, yeah, okay. I hear what you're saying. He saw something in me, though. He saw a spark, and that's why I do speak. I'm not, nat- I'm not a good speaker. I don't consider myself a good speaker. I'm also not a public speaker. I'm a storyteller. I tell my story um, or share stories of other veterans that are doing awesome things. But speaking, he talked to the whole class, but he was really suit, uh, rooting for me that day. He was really just trying to interject there. So the next day I showed up to class, and there was a Reader's Digest magazine on my desk. It's basically the making of an American warrior, a guy who was a Marine who actually got out, went into the Navy to see if he had what it takes to survive in SEAL training. And that told me everything I needed to know about what training was really going to be like. You got a decorated Marine who gets out who wants to try this next step. So... Wow, that's crazy. So then the journey began of me telling my friends, hey, guess what? I'm going to join the Navy. I'm going to be a SEAL. And nobody knew what SEALs were back then. So it's not like there was fanfare. It's just, okay, cool, whatever. And you were 17 at this time? Yeah, I was 17. And I told my parents, my mom, she's sweetheart. She's, (laughs) you just go do it, honey. My dad, he's immediately goes to online and, you know, he searches and he's like, you realize that there's an 85% attrition rate? I don't even know what the word attrition rate means at that time. So I'm like, what does that mean? Hmm. He's like, you know, the 85% quit. I was like, okay. So yeah, it's tough. That's why I want to do it because it's hard. Um, But that's all it was, was just talk. I was talking to everybody. I wasn't moving forward in life. And I went back to just doing the same stuff. I wasn't working out. I wasn't doing anything to advance my life. I was just talking the talk. 9-11 happened. I remember sitting there in class and I saw that second tower explode and then fall to the ground. And I remember the newscaster talking about it being a possible terrorist attack. And when you have two planes simultaneously hit two buildings adjacent to each other um, within that time frame, it's not an accident. And you think about, holy cow, everybody in that building's dead, or at least the majority of them. Those are our people. If I'm going to really do this, I got to do it now. So I went to the recruiter station right then and there, and I told my recruiter, hey, I want to be a SEAL. And he said, well, it doesn't work just like that, buddy. Said, whatever it takes, just get me in and I'll make it happen. So I would enlist in the delayed entry program in the Navy, which is basically where you have to graduate. So I would finish my schooling and then I would go right to the Navy with hopes of being a SEAL. So, but from that point on, I was in the gym every single day. From the delayed entry program, you get a full membership to the YMCA. So every day I was working out, I was swimming, I was running, I was working out with people that are bigger than me, learning things that I didn't know. Um, I think it was the first time I actually started to get a six-pack and a chest, which was super cool. Um, so let me ask you, just because I'm curious, logistically, did they literally take you that day? I was not allowed to go into the service of that specific No, but not day. service, but did you sign up that day you walked in? I couldn't. I was too young, uh-huh. and so you have to have a parent, uh, parent sign off for you mm-hmm. unless you're over 18. So then you came back, and then you began the process. I believe I got parental signature. Because they're just like, whatever I can do to get this kid square, let's just sign away. I think I got my whole family to write up. (laughs) Right. So it was like Santa's list. Um, So yeah, I was training every single day, working out, and then I got my academics up. My teachers got together and said, let's get them on a program that gets them squared away. And um, it was just really cool to see that that bond those teachers had to bring me back up to speed to get me where I needed to be. And I finished, I graduated on the honor roll. And it wasn't that I didn't understand the work, I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was good to prove to myself that I started to understand it. So at that point, um, I enlisted, and then right after high school, I uh, went to the Navy to start my uh, process in my career, which was awesome. That's pretty incredible. It's it's amazing how quickly that 
transpired really from meeting the teacher to enlisting was how long? Uh, the enlistment? Or pre-enlist or pre-enrollment. Yeah. So I enlisted senior year and then it was right after that. I, I think I took a month off of the summer or two months off the, for the summer and then I went. Um, and it's amazing how you know God interjects in all of our lives, right? I mean, just the, the timing of that is, is incredible. Okay, so you, I mean, you're welcome to talk a little bit about what it's like to go through the training. I know listeners are fascinated with that. Sure. Or touch on that and then, you know, get to deployment because it was very active when you were engaged, right? Which yeah. It's probably not as active now, I suppose. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, the training and then actually, you know, what happened in your deployment. Sure. Well, so there's there's so many things. I mean, we could talk for hours on this. I mean, to condense it to the finer points, I mean, when you show up to boot camp, you back then you didn't have a guarantee that you were going to training. So you could get in your contract now or you go straight to BUDS, um, which is SEAL training, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Um, but back then you had to strike for it. Um, so you'd go there in boot camp, and then you would basically raise your hand when they asked, and then you would go try out. And you had a physical assessment, your academic review, uh, which was your ASFAB. You had a uh, oral review board, and I don't remember the psyche valve thing, but they have all kinds of stuff that you do. So you went through Navy Basic first. Well, you go and you're doing all this while you're in Navy Basic. Okay, got so it. they require you to get up two hours earlier than everybody else in Basic to go meet these swimmers, these dive motivators, mm-hmm. these seals, and work out with them. And they don't tell you once you do all these tests, they don't tell you you're in, and they don't even tell you to show back up. And so it really is on you to get up and be an adult and show up two hours earlier before your even boot camp uh, division wakes up to go work out and continue to do that and then come back and then start your day with boot camp. And so, I mean, I just felt for myself when they dropped me down to boot camp in the Navy, it was 10 push-ups at a time. It's like I'm losing what I've gained. I'm, I need to get after it. So that was a blessing for me to be able to just hit it hard, work out hard and learn new things and work out with like-minded people. But... Um, I remember the last week of boot camp, this big senior chief came in the room screaming my name, and, you know, that could only be one good reason or one bad reason. And so I didn't think I was in any trouble. I ran up to him, and he said, you still want to be a frog man? I said, more than ever, senior chief. He goes, welcome to Buds. Like, wow. So here I am. I just got accepted to Navy SEAL training. I'm 19. Mm. That's just crazy to me that I am actually at 19 years old. So I always tell the joke that my, um, what do you call it, my resume, it reads, Walgreens photo printer, U.S. Navy SEAL. <laughs> yeah, that is genius. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. So uh, you go from that, and back then you had to have a rate. So you would enlist, you go to a schooling, because if you failed out of SEAL training, you had to go somewhere else. Uh, so I chose aviation ordinance, which is basically taking bombs and putting them on the bottom of jets and letting the fighter pilots go use them or do what they do. Uh, for me, I chose it because it was the shortest school you could go through in the United States Navy, because you know me in school and academics. But it was also the easiest way for me to get to Buds the quickest. So I chose it. Four weeks in Pensacola, Florida. Um, my buddy that I went through Buds with, we went through A school together. Um, and we both of us were the only two guys that failed the test, the final test there. Mm-hmm. We were like, all right. The senior chief came into that and said, right, you guys have to pass this. You're not going to Buds. We got our stuff together and <laughs> we ended up passing and both shipping out to Buds. Um, so you show up to Buds. What is that like? You hear these stories uh, from people in the Navy. There was not much literature on it back then. And we're talking 2000. So I show up to the grinder, and that's really the only picture I'd ever seen, is these frog prints on the grinder, and this is where everybody does their physical training, the PT. It was nighttime. It was cold out. 
I could hear the ocean roaring. I could smell it. I could feel it. I was freezing and I was dry. And then I could see these guys come running in and it was hell week. And you only heard a small bits and pieces of the story of hell week. So you initially just take this all at once and you see this moon just looking at you like it's Halloween and the spooky. And you see these guys getting their butts kicked. And you look at the number of them that have quit and just how many or how few there are still. And you just, you're like, how do I do this? Like, how do I really do this? You guys been up three days. It was Wednesday night when I showed up. Wednesday night at Howick. It's the third day. How are they doing what they do? And then the last guy in the train just takes a good look at me because they all had this thousand yard stare. But this last guy looks at me and he just sticks his tongue out, kind of like, this is awesome. And it showed me that in, even in chaos, there's life, there's passion, mm-hmm. there's fun. Um, and I think it, for anybody who's been in a chaotic situation, if you get to that point, it'll drive you nuts to really, will it, you will go insane and then you'll just start laughing. And so you find the humor within chaos. So anyway, you see that and you're like, wow, these guys are where I want to be. This is, I want to be those guys. And that's really, I think for everybody, what we all aspire to do in SEAL training is we want to become those guys. It's not so much to wear the title SEAL, but it's to be those people that we want to emulate. We want to see those people. Uh, or we want to become those people that are teaching us, that are that have the stories, that are hardcore, um, that are quiet professionals. So it was really cool to see these guys. And plus, I mean, I saw every one of our instructors had a huge six-pack, big old chest, and I was like, you're telling me if I just stick at this training out that I get issued that kind of a body? Well, mm. I'm in, 100%. Never happened, by the way. Um, so day-to-day, you're constantly getting beaten down, and that's just physical. I mean, you don't even have to yell as an instructor in training because the physical regiment will just take over for you. You start out in the morning, maybe 4.30 in the morning, where you're doing a four-mile time run, soft sanded boots. It's still dark out. It's still cold. Um, but you're hauling the mail, and you've got to hit your times. Um, and the whole thing in Buds is every time that you pass, you have to pass the next one faster, and you have to continue to hit your mark and pass your fastest time. Um, so you do a four-mile time run. And then you change out into your next gear, and then you might go do an O course. And then from the O course, you might go do a two nautical mile ocean swim, side stroke or breaststroke. Um, this is all for time. Mm. And then for that, you go to boat PT or IBS surf passage, or you'll do log PT and hours on end, and then you'll hit chow. And then you'll come back and you'll wash, rinse, repeat, and you'll do more different kinds of calisthenics. Um, so it's constant training, it's constant physical fitness. Um, 4 30 in the morning, usually finishing off right after dinner. Because dinner is your, your final phase unless you have after-hours training. Um, so they want to make sure you get three solid meals a day. And Hell Week was the fifth week in training. So you start, which we started back then, was five weeks of pre-buds. So that's basically where the instructors can't really release uh, the crazy demons on you. Mm-hmm. But it's just to get you up physically to a level. And then after the five weeks, you start buds. It's another five weeks to get to Hell Week. Um, once you get to Hell Week, if you're still there, um, then is where you really got to answer the mail. Five and a half days, you're cold, you're tired, soaking wet, you're miserable, you bleed. Your skin is just rubbed raw from the sand grinding on it for five and a half days. You do med checks every day. You're burning 25,000, 20 to 25,000 calories a day. You're eating that much. You're eating every six hours. You got a new instructor shift changing every eight hours. They take all the demonic instructors and put them on one shift, and that's the night shift because what better way to have fun during the darkness than with mm. the worst people on the face of the earth, even though they're great guys. Um, so they've got everything detailed out, and that's what I love is there's everything is very well thought out. And that's what, you know, a lot of the CEOs, a lot of people that I meet today, they're always aspiring to make their companies better, um, and they're looking at different facets. In training in the SEALs, we look at every facet, and we are always touching on every facet. And every time we come back from a deployment, we start at the basic again. 
we don't use the knowledge we have and just stay at this higher level. No, we revert all the way back to the basics to start over, utilizing what we know. Um, and so that's really key because you have new people come in. We have new guys come in. Those are your fatal, those are your problems right there or your weakest links. So we got to get them up to speed. So it's constant day to day. You'll start first phase. If you make through Hell Week, um, then you'll go on to Hydro Hell Week or Hydrographic Reconnaissance where you're doing map studies. And then from there, you move into second phase, which is all dive phase. You're learning open circuit, closed circuit diving. Um, you're learning dive physics, dive medicine. And then that's two months long. You spend 35 hours underwater during the two months. Um, and then you move into third phase, which is all your more tactical stuff, land warfare, demolition, all the cool guy stuff that we talk about. Um, so it's a six-month program, three phases. And then that basically, it doesn't make you a SEAL. That's just congratulations. Here's a certificate. But we had Tommy Norris come to speak at our graduation, who is a Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL. Um, he's, he's an icon in our career, mm -hmm. an icon in our lives, and in mine personally. And he said, you know, SEAL training doesn't make SEALs. He said, it's, you were already a SEAL before you showed up here. Now you just went through the training and got the certificate. But it's a mentality. It is a mindset, just like anything we can use in life. It's all mindset. If you want something bad enough, the only one who's going to stop you from doing it is you. Everything is out there for the taking, and if you don't want it, somebody's going to take it from you. So if you have a dream and you're not executing on it, then you're never going to get there. Um, but I would say drop it and go for it. So you get through SQ, or, uh, BUDS, and then you go to a follow-on training, which is SQT, SEAL Qualification Training. It's another six months where you're doing real, I guess, more high-level stuff. You're learning how to really be an operator. It's not trying to weed you out now. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll start with a class of roughly 200. You'll be down to 20 to 30 guys by the end of class. Um, and then you go into SQT and, uh, you don't drop anybody usually during SQT. Now it's a more gentleman's course where you just, you're learning the rigmarole. And then after that, so now you've got six and six, so you got a year, you'll show up to your team and you've got another 18 months of training called workup and multiple things within that in order to deploy. So it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot, but it has to be. So are you interacting with any active operators at that time? Just curious, do they come speak to you? Do you? any of the active SEALs while you're going through training, do you get to see those guys at all that are in units? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So okay, I, I just didn't know if there's interaction between, you know, they come talk to you all or just you're... We run everything in-house. So every single instructor is uh, an actual SEAL. Okay. Um, some guys just got off deployment status and are coming over to do a, a shore duty billet, so that, that's their new training block. So they just got back from a combat operation, now they're your instructor. Um, it was very unique. When I joined, it was that time where we were just kicking off the war. And so there was a lot of guys in the community that had never really seen a war. A war? They'd been in different scenarios, but not war. And then I'm getting through buds and I'm going straight to my team after all the training and I'm getting straight to war. So I get very lucky. We're right out of the gate. We were going to war and deployment to Ramadi and we just kept deploying. And so it was very cool. Um, so the op tempo, I mean, we've been 19 year war now, you know, 19 years. Can you believe it? That's crazy. That's a long, long time, but it was fun. It was Wild West. It was, we actually got to go, because War to Us is testing our theories, right? Mm -hmm. You want to go over there and you want to do the job, but you got to go test your theories that you've trained so hard for. So you do work with these guys who are in different units, but the guys who are actually on different teams, you rarely see them, they're training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really one takeaway would be you just don't quit, right? Yeah. Absolutely. During the process, because I've, I've talked to some other guys and you're, you're doing a thousand push-ups, but at some point you can't do another push-up, right? I mean, it's just because, as you said, it just becomes comical, but you can either, you just can't quit. 
You can't quit. Right. It's one day at a time. This is the one thing they taught us first day that really works in everything in life. It's one day at a time, one evolution at a time. So if you're really thinking about the end of your year, your fiscal year, starting that fiscal year, um, you're, you're in trouble. But if you think about, okay, we put a, a plan together. We wanted to execute. So we do our visionary board and plan out. But then today we have a hundred or we have a, a mile run or a four mile time run. Why am I worrying about the swim later on? Why don't I worry about this run, execute on it, nail it. And then what is the next one after that? And don't even think about it. And so if you can live, that forces you to live in the moment, which yeah. we always get away from. So it is actually the best place to be. And uh, I wish I could do it more. Yeah, we all do. Okay, so you reference war. Yeah. Which for our listeners, because they're younger than us, quite a few of them, you know, what war are you referencing? And then why don't you talk a little bit about your deployment? Well, I mean, back in World War II. Yeah. Was, yeah. <laughs> so the wars we have today, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. So Iraq, Afghanistan, um, obviously things have happened all over the place. Uh, but for us, we were told right out of the get-go that we were going to Iraq. So would did they Desert Storm One was it Desert Storm One I guess technically or Desert Storm or in the what? early nineties. So was, what was what which deployment was this? Which so that was a Gulf War. Okay. Yeah, and so this is it's much of a follow on from that, but okay. this is brand new. This I mean I would say new as in we call it a war now, but yeah. it's been going on for a long time. Right. So this Iraqi war and that they kicked off two thousand one. Right. Um, Afghanistan, Iraq. And um, our platoon and our team was tasked with going to Iraq. So Operation Iraqi Freedom, mm -hmm. um, first task for us was going into Habaniya, Iraq, and then hopefully going into Ramadi, which was the new Fallujah at the time. So it was pretty interesting. This was 2005 now. So, you know, and this is your first deployment. It's my first deployment. And just, I don't want to forget this. What, do you remember what that felt like? What, what you felt like? Is it excitement, nerves, a little bit of everything? So I only served for eight years, so I rarely forget yeah. anything that I did. I mean, I I cherished every moment. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, you have these crazy nerves because you're brand new. Doesn't matter if you've gone through two and a half years of training. You're still brand new. You've mm -hmm. never seen the show, which was what we call war. You have no idea what to expect. You know these guys have already been there who are next to you, but you haven't. And so you're... You, you're, you've got confidence. You've got major confidence because you're operating with some of the best in the world, but you still just have this unknown. And so yeah. getting there and actually, you know, it's, it's essentially get on the plane. You say goodbye to your family if they come out to visit you, and you fly for 20 hours plus, and you land, and you're in Iraq. Mm. And it's usually dark, and you don't see anything. And you're like, okay, so we're here. You get to your base. You check in with the other group, and then that's really it. But then you're like, holy cow. And then when you get your first tasking, when you're going outside the wire, that's when everything's just like, holy cow. Now, mm -hmm. you're new, so they're not going to put you on you know, the front of the assault, or they're not going to make you do um, the higher-level stuff. But still, just being there, if anything at any point goes wrong, you will have to action your job. You will have to step in to help somebody else. So it's really crucial that you know your position to the best of your ability and everybody else's position. And that's what we do. We try to train on everybody. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're nervous. You're excited. You're super fired up you know that you couldn't be in a better spot because you've got the best around you mm -hmm. um, and you've got assets that are coming for you if you need. But yeah, it's just, it's an emotional roller coaster. And then you realize that you go train and then you go out and you do the op and you come back and there's nobody on that tent, that, that op and there's no bad guys or nothing. And you're like, well, that's a good taste. And your heart's pounding a hundred miles an hour. And it's just, it's, was your first assignment uneventful? Absolutely. Yeah. 
I don't know yeah. if they did that on purpose if, uh, or if it just happened to be that way. But, you know, some of them are very uneventful, but you still, every one of them are the same. You still make sure that you know that these things are going to be the worst case scenarios every single time. Mm-hmm. And once it's completely done and you're back on base and you can debrief and you can de- de-escalate. But until that, you're like that dog that's 100 miles an hour that has a zero and a thousand and you're at the thousand pace ready to execute. And then after the op's over and you're back home, you can dial it down. Okay. Yeah. So take us through a little bit of the service when you were there. And, and clearly there was a defining moment that I'd like you to get to, which was an IED explosion. And, but take us through that however you'd like. I mean, for my first platoon... It was hard. It was just all I was trying to do is earn the respect of our teammates. You know, you work hard. You're there before everybody else. You're there after everybody else. You're doing all the jobs that nobody wants to do, clean the, you know, the cans and take out the trash and whatever, and then just get, you know, basically talked down to and yelled at the whole time, uh, just make you feel like you're nothing. And So, so that's just, during deployment. That's getting, I mean, it'll still happen on deployment as well because you're still a new guy. Right. You yeah. know, the kind of a theme that I realized was that you're not a new guy until you set foot on your native soil after deployment and you have eyes on your new guys. So yeah, when yeah. the new guys show up, even if you get back from deployment, if you don't see those new guys in your sight, you're still a new guy until yeah. you see them. So it's uh, bittersweet. Um, yeah, so I was just trying to, you know, make sure that I proved to them that I was worthy. And we get on deployment, and then you just start doing operation after operation. That's what you're there to do. We're not there to mess around. We're not there to make friends. You're legitimately there to operate and as much as you can and then come home safe or as safe as you can. Um, so we do an operation after operation, and then you just kind of get into the rigmarole. The first two weeks of deployment are the, da- the dang- most dangerous and the last two weeks of deployment when things typically can happen. So you just got to be very clear about that because we don't hold up on operations because of those theories. We still fight hard and go 100 miles an hour, but you just know that there's a more sensitivity towards those two because last thing you want to do is bring somebody home in a, in a casket or bring somebody home who's been injured in the last two weeks of deployment. You want to just, but it is what it is. It's just what we sign up for. Um, but during the middle of deployment, you kind of forget about your safety. You don't care about it. You're just like, all right, we're going to cover down each other. We're going to go operate. We're going to hit it 100 miles an hour. Um, And then something happens that you didn't account for. Um, You know in the back of your mind, it's like I talked to the firefighters, and it's like, well, I'm not going to get burned. Maybe. Maybe not. But you can't say that. You have no idea. If you're charging hard, you're going to get hurt. If you Mm -hmm. are charging hard, you're going to get hurt in anything, in sports, in physical fitness, I mean, anything you do, if you are charging hard, you are going to get hit at some point or do something that's going to get you going. So three months in deployment, we're coming back from an op. It was a very uneventful op, and we were driving down. We were three clicks or three kilometers south of uh, where we actually lived on base. We hit a roadside bomb. We were the fourth or fifth car in the convoy, and I had no idea what happened. It was so fast. It was so violent. It's like if you could, if you could, as you are sitting here listening to this, if you could go right now and get up and go sit on a PBR bowl without any training and ride it, it would be like that bowl being your work seat at, at your office. Mm. It was so violent that it ejected me straight out of the vehicle, out of the turret into the sky. Um, it blew my teammates through the doors that they were in, uh, the Hummer, my driver, and my VC or vehicle commander. It burned everybody in the Hummer. Um, pretty bad um, shrapnel spit through the cockpit um, it was horrible it was a 155 pressure plated bomb um, and it was meant to kill us that's what those things are there for 
nothing else. And we were very fortunate. Some of our EOD guys, our, our bomb experts, they were looking at it afterwards and they were saying that it went low order. And that means that it didn't hit its max capacity. So that's why we lived. Mm. Why? And you just, you, you, so you don't even have to answer that question because you know God is the answer. And, but sometimes it takes those kinds of things to bring us back to the reality that God exists and that God is why we're here. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we don't, we don't forget about him, but we put things like that aside in an operational kind of um, uh, operational lifestyle because we're just solely focused on this mission at hand. But that really brought me back to it. And I'll tell this story about it because it makes me feel good. I have a buddy who actually is the one who influenced me. Um, more than anybody else. I was in high school. I was drinking one night. I was partying with some friends. He came over and he said, are you drunk? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, how are you going to be a Navy SEAL if you keep doing this dumb stuff? And then he gets up and leaves. I was like, whoa. That was the first time I'd ever been tuned up in my life. Like really tuned up. So he was right. And I stopped. From that point, getting ready to deploy, now fast forwarding a couple years, getting ready to go on my first deployment, I was sitting with him in Michigan before I actually went back home to go deploy. And he said, I want you to have something. And he gave me a St. Christopher uh, pennant. I was like, what's this? And he said, well, it's protector of traveling, man. I want you to have it. Why? And he's like, well, I wear this when I fly. I was like, you fly? He's terrified of heights mm. and he wants to be a pilot. So he wears it when he flies and he wants me to have it to deploy. When I got blown up in 05, we all lived, but that St. Christopher um, pennant was gone. Which basically means that St. Christopher protected mm-hmm. the traveling men and went on to go take care of somebody else. So you don't ever need to look for God. He's all around us. He's always there. And just when you think you're not doing good, you know, just remember that he's always going to be there for you. So we all know this. Um, some of us pray before ops. Some of us um, talk about it thoroughly and in depth. Um, but the real reason that we were able to go do these missions, because they are not pretty, these missions are specifically set up for people who want to go do dirty things because it's not, it's not good. Um, so l- let me ask you about the explosion. Um, so everybody survived. Correct. Correct. Um, you suffered, I guess, second and third degree burns or second degree burns? First and second degree burns. First and second. But some other guys didn't fare as well. Is that is that correct? I was the least of the injured in the vehicle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are those just, are those, are you in touch with those gentlemen or are they, have they gone on with their, I mean, is everybody healed i have talked I, in fact i um, talked with all four of the other guys in the last two weeks really yeah and yeah. they're all they're all crushing it they're all doing great yeah, yeah. good which we're going to get into what you've done for burn victims and survivors and which is very fascinating so because i want to keep us moving forward but what i am curious two things as you can tell i like Facts. Yeah. Was that? Do you think that IED is that a correct term? By the way, correct IED. Was that? Did the enemy plant that there specifically, knowing your route, or is it just pure luck? Uh, Does that make sense? Meaning, yeah. do they just put them out all over Iraq and what? Or you know, they got lucky. Is it on that, that thoughtful? It is okay. I mean, sure. There are people that are definitely thinking about these things. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to kill us. So, right, so they knew some pattern was using, y'all were using that road in some form or fashion. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And those are only do, do, uh, designed for that reason. Yeah, an IED, if you, if you study war, is a, granted you go back to Vietnam and there was booby traps and what, but that's become a, that's a whole other phenomenon of the desert wars, right, is, is these IEDs or improvised explosives. It's a wimpy way to fight war. You want to fight war, you come fight me face to face. You don't hide something in the ground for us to get killed at. That's not war. Right. So 
but that's why we're there, and that's why I want everybody to hear this. We are over there protecting us, not so much um, protecting the U.S. here. We're over there to make sure it stays over there and never comes here, because can you imagine America with IEDs sitting in the ground? I, I can't even imagine having to be fearful, because when you live over there, you see these people having to figure out what their life, their day-to-day -day is going to look like, because they don't know where they can walk. They don't know how they're going to move forward. They have kids. So when you think about the real stuff, um, I just want you guys to all hear that, that we were over there to make sure this doesn't come here, but it is horrible. I mean, this has given me a perspective of what, how grateful you need to be to live in the U.S. or anywhere else besides where a war is happening. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. And I just, I can't even, I can't even imagine. So, yeah. Okay. So what's fascinating to me is I had always, before I really knew you, thought that was the end of the story. But you go back, this is when you become a sniper, right? I mean, somewhere post, post you getting blown up as I love that phrase for some reason. <laughs> uh, so get it, take us through that. Sure. Well, the one thing you wanted me to mention earlier is, uh, so because I got blown out of the turret in the sky, that's oh, how that's I got right. my nickname yeah. Birdman because I went flying. Everybody, and what was your nickname prior to that? I was soup and the other guy was sandwich. Yeah. So it was an upgrade. It's much sexier. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, getting back from that deployment, the guy who was driving us in that vehicle was blown up, uh, was our team lead sniper. I, he was the guy who rode me the hardest during training, um, and I always looked up to him, and I said, that's who I want to be. So after uh, I got to, I was lucky enough to jump on him and work on him when we got blown up, and um, came back, and I said, I want to enlist in sniper school. It's what I want to do. I want to be more professional of an operator. I got, I got selected, and I went through training, and I made it. And so I found myself at my second platoon as a team sniper, which was great. I got to operate as a sniper, doing the long gun, learning more about math. And you know me and being a scholar. It's fantastic. Drink were you a marksman of any sorts prior to that? Meaning, were you a gun guy? Or I had a... never shot a gun before I went to boot camp. That's amazing. Yeah, no bad habits. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. Although I did fail my first shooting test. <laughs> so there was that. Um, so I get, I get to be a sniper. And then we do the same thing again. We take it back to the basics. We work up. And then we deploy. And so we deployed our second time was to Ramadi, Iraq. Um, and this was where I was a sniper doing more surgical operations and just doing the same thing really is trying to eliminate the enemy. That's why we are there. Um, and really make sure that everybody around us is safe. And if we have to be a QRF or a quick reactionary force for other units that so we're, we're there for that too. Um, so I deployed that one six month deployment. Nobody got injured. Um, we came back and then I went to the, my master chief and I said, hey, I'm going to do another pump. And he just laughed at me because usually you'll go to instructor billet and then you'll go back and do a team. Uh, but he gave me a third operation or a third pump. So that was pretty cool. So I was a team leader over there. I was just uh, running one of our little squads and um, we went out and operated to Basra, Iraq. In but you're still, I mean, you're doing sniper duty at that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that was my third deployment to Iraq. Um, that was Basra, Iraq, right in the Iranian border. Six months then out there, and then came back here. Um, along the way, you do many deployments too. I got to go to Philippine Islands for uh, three months, two and a half months, and then I also deployed to Lebanon for months. So you do these little things here. So get to see the world, get to see different types of. You know, you you find that there is Al Qaeda in the Philippines. It's crazy, um, and this this network, these bad guy networks, are just spread all over the world. So I did three deployments, um, three uh, platoons, and then I went over to instructor duty and essentially became an instructor for my last tour before I got out of the service at eight years. Uh, I just knew it was my time. I had accomplished everything I wanted to do. And quite frankly, I was tired. 
I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I've done this back to back. I'm good. You know, I want to try other things. And I got a job offer in Dallas, Texas, and I decided to come out here. And it's crazy moving to Dallas. I knew nobody. Didn't have. I mean, it's just I knew nobody. Had no idea. And the job that I was going to take actually fell through. So it was kind of the scenario of where do I go next? But you have to just continue to put that foot in front of the other. So while trying to figure out what my next step was, I was working in security. Um, I was dealing with a lot of high-level, you know, C-suite individuals and just talking about risk management. And I met a, an individual that changed the trajectory of where I thought my life was going. Because we always think, where this is where I'm going today. And then you find out, oh, no, that's absolutely not where you're going. Mm-hmm. I'll show you where we're going. God's going to show you everything. So he introduces me to, and I said, he, God introduces me to these five veterans, everyone different service, different branches. We're all joking in, the, in a boardroom about who's the best and telling more stories. And then there's this one guy who's been through an IED who has complete disfigurement on his face, who's been through a horrible injury. And nobody's talking about it. And so I just, I'm a pretty blunt guy. So I said, hey, dude, what are they doing for you guys today? And he said, look at me. And he looked me dead in the eyes when he said that. And that look he gave me was, I need help. And I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help him. And so I went that home, went home that night. He said he had had three dozen surgeries already. This is as good as it gets for him. <laughs> and so I say this. The next time you think about, you know, these people, these injuries and all this stuff, I'll tell you what they really go through. They go on an operation. Then they go and they get hurt. They get into a coma. They get blown up, they put, they're put into a medically induced coma, and then they find themselves in a hospital. They'll wake up in a hospital not knowing what happened or where they're at, and then they'll realize that they're fully bandaged up, and they don't understand the full extent to their injuries. And then at a point in time, the doctors will actually put a mirror in front of their face to say, it's time you need to understand what's happening here, and they will see somebody, and they will recognize who that person is, and then they will realize that that is their new normal. And it's not a pretty normal. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? So all this float of emotion came running in, in my soul, and I was thinking about, I don't know how I would react to that, and I don't think I could be as strong as him, so i got to help him. So I studied all night long on what there was for burn care. Couldn't find anything. There was no GoFundMe sites back then. Didn't even exist. So I called him the next day. I said, hey, dude, I couldn't find anything on burn care, but I don't like to fail. If I were to start something on your behalf, would you join me? And he goes, man, I'd be honored. I was like, cool. That's all I needed to hear. And that was when we became Sons of the Flag. And we call ourselves uh, Sons of the Flag Revolutionizing Burn Care. And we started January 2012 to be the pinnacle burn foundation for veterans and first responders around the nation. I legitimately started this org for one person, didn't think any further than that. And a D.C. firefighter reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, I think your outfit's really cool. I'm a D.C. career firefighter. I got three boys all in service right now. I want to join your team and I want you to open this up to firefighters as well. Like, Roger that. So I make the joke that we grew nationally before we grew locally. Mm-hmm. And that's how it went. It just became this organic thing where Sons of the Flag, this prominent name, because it was a poem written in World War I based off the Civil War. It talks about the North and the South fighting against each other. And at the end of the day, under God, coming together as one in the USA. That's the poem. That's what we are. We're taking doctors around the country and connecting them with these burned patients to give them the absolute best care they need. And it's grown organically to where firefighters are now adopting us for their fire conferences. And they're joining the team from different states. And so we have a task force now where these men volunteer their time 24-7, 365 days a year to be on our team, to be the local boots on the ground, to establish relationships with their burn unit, to find out who's been burned and what help they need, 
and to host events so that the community knows that Sons of the Flag exists. So, so let's dig in there a little bit on the Sons of the Flag. Because you, you told me something fascinating that I would have never crossed my mind. So coming out of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of appendage injuries, right? Loss of legs and arms. And then the amputee, um, you know, they, they learned a lot about that. Then the prosthetics have become incredible. But there hadn't been massive progression in burn victims or burn care for many, many years. But coming out of all these, these what I just call the desert wars or whatever we want to refer to in the Middle East, there was going to be a lot of burn victims. People were getting cooked inside of Humvees or whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So you're pressing forward advancement in for burn victims, correct? Correct. And, and what, what does that look like? Are you funding science? Are you funding doctors? Are you actually helping the victims? There's a little bit of everything. You know, so it is. It's a little bit of everything. We're not big enough of an organization to fund R&D on a, on a big scale. Not yet anyway. We will mm-hmm. be. Uh, but ultimately, the first thing we started to do is we started to ask patients, what do you need? Because the question they always came back with is, after a surgery, what's next for me? What does my life look like now? So we had to go answer that question. Uh, so we started by talking to patients and then saying, we need to bring in more doctors. Right now, you have about 480,000 people in the USA that get burned every year. This are statistics from the American Burn Association. Of the 480,000 people, um, you got less than 200 accredited burn surgeons nationwide. Mm. So they can't even take care. They can't even take care of the load. So we wanted to add doctors to this mix. Let's inspire younger generation doctors or doctors in their residency to become burn surgeons and say, never mind the fact that you can make multi-millions of dollars doing plastic surgery in private practice. Let's talk about how you can really help somebody who has helped you. And try to influence them to want to be in a place that is a difficult. That doctor will be that patient's doctor for the rest of their life. This is not a deal where it's turnkey and click. Mm -hmm. You're always having to figure it out. Now the enemy is on their skin. So they have to continue to fight it and fix it. So ultimately we hire doctors in a fellowship program. We scholarship doctors. I love to make this joke. I am a high school graduate who hires doctors for Mm. a living. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, and we rely on them to give us the best updates. So what they do is half the year they work on patient care and half the year they're working in the labs doing R&D. And we have to spend the money to give them the fellowship program. So we pay $100,000 per fellow per year. Uh, we've done five doctors right now. All of them are still in burns. So we've added five doctors to a less than 200 accredited burn surgeons. Mm. And as we grow as an organization, we're going to continue to grow that. We've done two at Harvard and three at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Um, and we're going to grow that program. And then our number one program is the patient and their family. So how do we actually help? It's simple. We have built a team called Mission Reconstruct Freedom where if you're burned, you submit an application online to Sons of the Flag, and we immediately uh, set you up with a Skype consultation with this team of surgeons. They'll be in a boardroom, and you're going to talk to them face-to-face live, and you're going to tell them what your injuries are, what happened, what surgeries you had. They're going to look at you head-to-toe. And they're going to come up with a game plan all together. So it's like a SEAL team. It's an elite team of surgeons that are for your best interest. You don't get this kind of look anywhere in the country. You go to a doctor, you get fixed and burn your... Now we're bringing in a collective effort to look at you holistically. And they're going to come up with a game plan. Then we ship you out to Tampa, Florida, where you'll undergo your surgery. The turnaround time is usually five to seven days, pre to post stop and out back home. Uh, We partner with an awesome organization called Veterans Airlift Command, so we fly you on a private plane to and from so you don't have to deal with TSA with open wounds and all that. Um, So it's about $3,000 for a patient uh, for us to send veteran or first responder to Tampa with a family member. 
Um, and so that's our goal is we want to continue to push patients that are veteran first responder through this program to get them absolute real deal surgery for functionality and then better to a quality of life. And our goal in the future is to really expand this to how can we help the family while the patient is struggling with their burn initially. God, I, I could ask so many questions. So I'm going to, and we're clearly going to go over So, but you have to, there must be a number of people that want in that program, I suppose. It's tough. Right. It's really tough. Patients are tired of surgeries, so instead of us sending them 500 times in the next two years, we're trying to get the doctors to do everything at once. So it's a one But do you have multiple out. people applying? We do. Yeah, that, yeah. And do you have to choose? Okay. We have never had a waiting list. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so people ask, how do we vet our patients or how, what's a good candidate for us? Do you wear a burn? If you wear a burn, you served in the military, you were a firefighter or first responder, and we help civilians too. We don't dis- dis- uh, discriminate, and we sure as uh, heck don't push anybody away. Um, and I hope we never get to a waiting list, but everybody that we've helped has come through our door. We jump on them right then and there, and that's our new patient. And then, you know, it's a tragic um, scenario, but there is a lot of abuse in that space too because one of my friends serves at some of these burn camps where – your kids are unintentionally burned or intentionally burned, right? And I know you all have done some work with children, right? That's right. And we, we teamed up with Mercury One and Glenn Beck and funded 14 different pediatric burn camps around the country. Um, that was an unbelievable deal, and that was, a, that was a game changer for me to just see that. I get chills because it allows a kid to be a kid because nothing is worse for a child than not looking right. That's right. right? That's right. So they get to be around other kids that look like them right? Yeah. to some extent. And 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 – the camp counselors who have already been through the program who are now there and living in society and say, Hey, it gets better. Yeah. It gets better. Yeah. Yeah. There, 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 there's one fairly local. They do a burn camp somewhere local that I know. Yeah, Parkland people. does one. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing. I, I have to have an RD question because I do like science where, what does R and D look like? Are they coming up with synthetic skin now is it all still graphs? Like, are they making real progress with where we are in genomics and you know what we're doing with stem cells alone? On, I got my shoulder injected the other day with PRP, which is plasma-rich platelets, where they pull your own blood out, spin it, and shoot platelets back in. Um, what, what does that science look like? It's interesting. I mean, I'm getting way out of my swim lane. Well, I know we both are, but it used <laughs> to be you just graft skin up from somewhere, right, back yeah. in the day. Well, donor site. So you take skin off your own body, put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, they are doing unique advancements. So they're still doing the same stuff they were doing in Vietnam. They're doing skin graft, flapping. They're mm-hmm. doing skin expanders. They're doing um, Z-plasties. They're doing the same stuff, uh, but they're, these doctors we work with are doing new technologies and techniques to actually advance it. But they are working with stem cells. They're working with lasers. Lasers are a huge advancement within the burn community. And unfortunately, all these burn units do not have them. So they're really working with dermatologists and dentists and looking at these new lasers to bring them in so they could do less evasive surgeries or not even a surgery, but just Mm -hmm. a laser treatment. But it will be a a conglomerate of two to three different types of um, technologies that will all come together at the same time to really fix the skin. And we're still far off from that. Okay, so... I would be remiss if we don't talk about the nonprofit that I'm on the board of. Yes, of course. That you started as well, which is the Bird's Eye View Project. Tell us about that and the genesis and the, maybe even the, the ridiculous jump that was going to happen that I think started it to some extent. But and It will happen. Yeah. It will happen. Um, so, so, yes, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I wanted to frame this one because I want to tell the story about how we met, but... Um, so after starting Sons of the Flag in 2012, we had been working on it 
for a long time and for five years. And the idea for us, it was very difficult to, we don't promote our patients. We don't use them in any which mm -hmm. way. We just fix them. We help them. We stay alongside them. So how do we market? And do we even have a marketing budget? No. And so what if we what if we did? No, we don't. So how do we market ourselves? And Burns is a tough topic to talk about. Well, I truly believe that in a charity, you need three things to really be whole as a charity. If you want to be an elite standalone charity, you need to, one, have funding. You need to have awareness. And then you need to have partnerships. You cannot change anything on your own. I don't care whoever is listening and what their charity is. Not one charity is changing the mold on their own. It needs to be a partnership-driven thing. So we covered on our Burns physical burns. We don't cover down on the mental health side. We don't cover down on substance abuse, amputation, any of the other injuries that you can have in veteran first responder or just in life. But what if we could? And do we want to start the department up and raise more money and try? Or do we want to partner with somebody who already does it excellent, who that is their world? We need that. So that's really the impetus of starting Bird's Eye View Project was to partner with charities that are like-minded, that are willing to work together to the overall greater good of making the patient whole. Um, and then we go after a fundraiser together. So it really is a sharing deal where instead of it just being us, they all come together. We raise money collectively. We vet these charities that we support. We spend a long time vetting these charities. And then once they're under the queue of Bird's Eye View, you know that your money is not only going to help multiple organizations, so it's diversifying your funds, but it's also going to help multiple different types of injuries. Yeah, so the, so the listener understands it's interesting because in my business it's called a fund to fund, which is I'm here, then people give us money, then we put it to eight or seven different money managers. So it's a charity of a charity and to some extent in that the money flows through Bird's Eye View Project 100% down to the eight. Is eight correct? We have 11 now. We have 11, eight of which Sons of the Flag is one of them. Correct. Um, and they're all veteran focused. Veteran first responder. Yes. and But what is genius about what you said is a lot of these are great charities and nonprofits, but they just don't have the ability to raise money. That's right. Either the staff or the or even maybe even the wherewithal or the talent. I, I love it because it's a way to get deep. And I've been on the vetting process because I had to go through a file last year. <laughs> um, yes. So in, it, you're raising awareness through extreme sports. Correct. I, I mean, that's really... Well, so the thought, that's what's yeah, to get to tell them that because it's fascinating. The thought process was anytime you can watch something on, on YouTube or on your social media or whatnot, you see something crazy, daredevilish, you're going to stop and watch it. Usually a two minute segment and it just blows your mind and you're like, wow. And everyone you, loves watching a train wreck. That's right. right. Yeah. Or, I mean, and I <laughs> or that there might be a train wreck. Exactly. Yeah. Subconsciously hoping that you burn in. <laughs> right. But if you look down in the, the lower right hand corner or the left hand corner and you see how many views it's got, yeah. that's the kicker. And it's for nothing. It is absolutely for nothing other than just doing a stunt, which I applaud these people who do this stuff. But what if it could be for something and something greater than all of us? So why not go out and try to accomplish these same type of death-defying stunts to give the viewership an idea, like to open their eyes to, here, here we are, and then really lead them into what they need to know. This is not about the stunt. It's not about these stunts. It is about these humans that have stepped up to protect us. And we need to step up on the back end to protect them. If they're willing to risk it all, we can sure step out of our comfort zone for at least a couple weeks a year to do something for the greater good. Um, so if you're not part of a charity whatsoever, you're wrong. You should become part of something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be veteran, first responder. It could be anything. But if you're not engaged with something in your community, you're wrong. So these big death-defying stunts, I mean, I'll just throw it on you. The first one is called the Miracle Jump. I wanted to uh, 
combined base jumping, wingsuit flying, and snowboarding in a series of stunts that would make James Bond look like he was brand new amateur hour. Um, it was just absolutely gnarly, and we started to train for it and go after it, and this was a different venture. It, it fell through. We didn't get to raise the amount of capital we needed to pull it off, but we don't stop. We reboot. We figure out how to do it the right way, and um, we started doing these cool events where we basically say, if you've never made a skydive or you like skydiving, you want to be a part of this team. In order to be on our team for Bird's Eye View Project, it's called the Bomb Squad. You have to raise a certain amount of money, and then you're elected onto the team. That doesn't mean that you have to stop because our winner was Wayne McCullough. Mm, thank you. Crushed it, absolutely crushed it. I mean, destroyed it. But how much can you do within the time that you're allotted to raise the money to help the greater good of these charities? And then we all get together to collectively jump out of an airplane. That's called the Bomb Squad. You get a cool jumpsuit. You get to meet a lot of cool cool people who are like-minded who are in different types of business. So there's a lot of networking there as well. And it's just a fun day where you get to actually go jump. And for any of you who haven't jumped, when you jump and you land on the ground, for the rest of the day, you're going to be feeling pretty good. And I mean really good. Um, that's an awesome place to be. It's, it's really a meditation thing for me. Um, so we do this, and we first year we raised $550,000 um, that we pushed out to our beneficiaries. And you have the Bombardiers and the Bomb Squad. I just want to – the women is what's well, – the interesting thing is they really kind of put the pressure on everybody. That's right. I mean, what, 10 women or – they raised quarter Eight million women. dollars or something? Eight uh, women raised $130,000. Yeah. yeah. It was Amazing. crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And they were the ones who, yes, called out the men at their yeah. celebration night and said, well, we did it. You guys do it. And then, of course, the men stepped up. And there was 32 men first year. <laughs> so it was pretty cool to see the growth. And then we said, well, let's, let's expand this because it's a bucket list item, but you're doing it for a cause. And there's three things that come out of it. One, you get to raise money. The money goes to these charities. Two, you get to be part of a unique team that's actually jumping out of a plane, which is basically putting your life on the line to show that you care about what we do. And then the third one is you find your successor, so we continue to grow this thing. Now we have Dallas, Houston, Nashville, Boston, and we're going to open up Colorado and San Diego next year. So it's going to be fascinating to see all these different groups going. Um, but we're getting back to the stunt as well because I truly believe that in order for us to really see the full fruit and the vision of what we need to do, we take these lower-level charities to the next level, we need to go bigger. So that's where we're bringing it back to a high, high-level extreme sports stunt that's going to be on national TV we're praying right now it'll be October 2020, um, and you can always follow us at Bird's Eye View Product to understand what we're going to do. We haven't released anything yet. This is the first time I'm talking on radio or anything about it, but just think about Back to the Future. I want you that to resonate in your head, and I want you to continue to follow, and if you're not following, check out Bird's Eye View Project at all applications, social media, go to our website, and keep updated, sign the newsletter so that you can keep informed of what we're doing because this is going to be a national stunt. It's going to be massive. It's hopefully going to raise a lot of money that we can push to these organizations. And that would be the overall goal of Bird's Eye View is if we can infuse them with capital and awareness, can we really take them to the next level? What could they really do? So I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. So there's this massive stunt that we're working on. Um, uh, we will say we're looking for corporate sponsors, fair enough. Absolutely. Right? So if you're listening to this and, and – by the grace of God, the, the listenership is growing pretty rapidly. So, and, and we're talking about real corporate sponsors. I mean, real dollars at a high level. So if you know of anybody that wants to underwrite, or you can get us to people that want to underwrite an extreme stunt, it don't, this is nothing insane. I mean, the guy that jumped out of the airplane was underwritten with no parachute and landed in a net was underwritten by stride gum. So, you know, any connectivity any listeners have to people from a chief marketing officer, it's it, it, a fortune 500 type companies. We would appreciate 
any any help we can get because yeah. I agree with you. We're going to get this done. You know, it all goes back to something you said that you noticed. It was when you did you repelled from was it the big screen at Cowboys Stadium? Yeah, the jumbotron. and you noticed the the jumbotron with it. Was a dog on your back at the time or not? Between my legs. Yeah, <laughs> and you noticed that you're you got two hundred thousand hits or something, right? Yeah, and so that that made you realize if they're going to watch that, I mean, clearly they're going to watch what you're going to do. Yeah, big stunt. Yeah, absolutely. And what, why not? Why not put a call to action there? Right. You know, let's give them something to check out and have fun with, and then let's give them something to really resonate and think about. And then be able to back it up and do something behind it. So it's super fun. I just wanted to tell a story because I haven't told it about how Wayne and I met. So we met by a dear friend of both of ours, Whit Peterman. Mm. Uh, he works at Six Sight. Who's also shout started, out to Whit. Yeah, shout out to Whit and Six Sight and Stephen Holly. Awesome, awesome hunting gear. Um, so he said, "I want you to meet my buddy." And so he set it up, and we met uh, for some chow. And I. I didn't even know what the meeting was really for. I didn't know. There was no context to it. So Yeah, there wasn't. So I basically just started talking about what I'm doing. And Wayne just stops me in the, like shortly, really quickly into it. He goes, oh, you, I'm not here for a pitch or anything. You just just talk candidly. You know, just let's get to know each other. And so I was like, okay, cool. I roger that. So he stopped me dead in my tracks. So we started talking about the things that I do. Got to know a little bit about Wayne, um, which just a connector. And like I said, when you collect people, you find people that you want in your life forever. It was instantaneous, and I think the only thing I could have offered Wayne was a position on the board. I couldn't have offered him anything else in my life, but I wanted him in my life. And I was like, hey, you got to join the board of directors. And I think he said, you know, can I think about it? Can I talk to my wife? And I needed to talk to God about it. And I think I said no. Yeah, you something. did. Something close. <laughs> and and uh, I still didn't know you that well, and I knew I was dealing with the guy that, you know, my, m did kill people probably at one point, so <laughs> I was a little, I was a little tepid to say no. But you know what? It's it's amazing. So you joined the board right right after that, and you're still on the team, and you've been a hard charger. We've learned a lot from you uh, about just continuing to keep your word, getting mm -hmm. after it, um, and just telling everybody. You know, that's the hard thing. People say I don't know how to talk to or, or people. I don't know how to ask my buddy for money or that. It's like you're not asking for yourself. You're mm -hmm. asking for the greater good. Um, it's pretty easy to do, um, and you've really shown us that you mean that in every facet of your life, from salesmanship club to um, your vi your movie, mm -hmm. um, to how you work in Bible study and how you work with your brother and telling people and teaching people within the community about religion and God and how you raise your family um, and how you do your job, and you continually check in on us, even though you're super busy. So you're a solid guy all mm. around. I would say that you could have been a SEAL. Yeah, and yeah. we can test that too. <laughs> I try to do it every morning, CrossFit. So um, let me—I'm going to circle back on something because it's important to both of us. So PTSD is a real problem, I, and a real issue. And, and the reality is, it's beyond even the military, right? It's just depression, and what it, it appears coming out of these wars that they're just—and I think it's always been around. They call it shell shocked or whatever, but. Sadly, it just got pushed under the rug, which gets to the point of um, how many veterans a day take their life? 22? Uh, on an average, they say 22. Yeah. I mean, sit with that for a while, listeners. I mean, really, 22 veterans take their life a day. Okay. it's That has to be stopped. And, of course, we're supporting a nonprofit that is working on that. So what do you – a couple things. It's real. That's right. Um I, we don't know if it's because of the concussive effect of, of the blow, you know, what's happening. 
what do you tell somebody, and you're about to talk to these guys, because you've lost many friends, right? I lost a friend to suicide in the past couple of weeks. So what, what do you, if somebody were listening right now, what would you tell them? Speak up. Yeah, we're all, we've all hurt at a point in time. It's just like normal life. Things are going to get you down, um, but you need to speak up. Yeah, isolation is a terrible thing when you're depressed. That's right. When you start noticing that you're not wanting to do the things that you love doing, mm-hmm. love doing, that, that you're not talking and communicating and reaching out to the people that you absolutely love, you're starting to go down a fatal funnel. You can negate that right away by just talking it out and continuing to talk it out. The better you're going to be. Every single time that I have an issue whatsoever, I call on my board of directors just to bounce things off of them so it doesn't get into a hot spot. Um, my teammates, I continually reach out to them just to hear. They'll tell me a story about some crazy thing I did that basically should have gone to jail for when I was in the SEAL teams, and it just makes me laugh so hard. And when I get off the phone, I feel incredible. Mm-hmm. And if you isolate, you're right. It's when things go really wrong. So just continue to step up and talk about it and always check in on your people. You know, you got to make that effort. And it's not just a text on social media or some stupid crap like that. Make a call to a friend that you haven't talked to in a couple weeks or a month or whatever. Just say, hey, you were on my mind. I just wanted to reach out to you. How you doing? And it doesn't have to be in any kind of context. Just thought about you. I love you. I want to talk to you. How, how's everything going? Tell me a little bit. And then tell them a funny story. Humor is the best way to get people out of their own skin. But reach out. Make a concerted effort to reach out to your people, to check on them. The buddy check challenge, there you go. Take it. So I don't know if I've ever asked you, do you, if this is too personal, it's fine. I mean, did you have any um, post-traumatic effects that you felt and dealt with? So we didn't talk about this stuff when I was in. Right. We didn't. First time, first deployment, we didn't know anything about it. And you just like go out there, you fight hard, you come back, you get your bell rung, and then you go do it again, wash, rinse, and repeat. Um, they started talking about it around 07, and then they started really hitting on it hard. Um, and it never really affected us initially because we're just hard charging, we're just continuing to go after it. But you start to see, hear about Army and Marine Corps and a lot of bigger units starting to lose guys to suicide, and you're like, this is crazy. And it never really affected us, and then it did. And that's when we started really taking a good look at this. this is really an overall arching problem. Um, there's a lot of things that people are looking at today. They're looking at this, the science behind your blood work. You know, what's going on with you? Is your mm-hmm. testosterone low? Are you having problems mm-hmm. with your blood levels or your the vitamins you're not taking in? What are you taking in? Um, for me, it was isolation. Mm-hmm. It was, I was, so I would encourage everybody to read a book. And I have a book called Sons of the Flag. So read that one first. Definitely yes. go check it out on Amazon. But go read a book called Tribe. By a guy named Sebastian Younger. Um, when you leave your tribe, and that's what a lot of military uh, men and women do when they get out of the service. They leave the tribe. That doesn't mean they're out of the tribe, but they're, just, they're not in the tribe there day to day. And they isolate. So read the book. It's very short, and it gives you a real taste of what these men and women are going through and what you could possibly be going through as well. Isolation equals depression, which can lead to horrible things. Um, I got depressed because I had no friends. I wasn't talking to my community. I had no... I wasn't doing operations anymore, and I was frankly living in a place where I knew nobody. I isolated, and I turned to the bottle, and I started drinking pretty hardcore. Mm. Um, and that lasted for a couple of years. And, you know, finally just my wife, you know, she was like, something's wrong with you. And I was hiding it good from everybody. And I went to AA that day with a dear friend of mine. Uh, he took me to AA, and I uh, stopped drinking right then and there. And, you know, I just knew that, you know, it's talk is cheap like I used to do. And so if you're going to step up, you're going to do it right. So... It's the only disease that I, I personally believe is because I have been a drunk before. 
The only thing I could say is this disease right here can be, can, can be cured. It's the only disease that can be cured right here and now. All you have to do is make the concerted effort to stop. It, is, it really is that simple because I've done it. And so you just, if you don't want it, that's a whole different story. But to make that effort to stop because it's destroying your life, you can do it right now. And if we could do that with any other disease, it would be awesome. But mm -hmm. this is the one that we really, but it does take putting on your big boy pants and your big girl pants and saying, I got a problem, it's done. It's mm -hmm. just like getting in the gym, right? I don't feel like it today. Get your butt in the gym. Keep moving. That's the way we're supposed to live on this earth. And your body stops moving, it dies. When your body keeps moving, you live and thrive. So, so, um, and I do want. There's been and mental health is very important to me. There, and there's so much good stuff out there. But mindfulness meditation has become a part of my life, which is to me, it's a little bit more prayer, but it really is mindfulness, which is they have discovering from UMass and Stanford and some of the great laboratories that you can actually, no one thought you could change your gray matter. Really, after a certain age, you can't, right? So you can rewire your brain. Even here in Dallas, they're doing some great work with the Brain Health Center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is a biological side to it. Cause whenever I meet with the men and I meet with a lot of them, like, okay, let's get a male blood panel. I've got a, a formula wellness, Dr. Brian Rudman, who does the best one I've ever seen. And so he'll come back, good testosterone level 600, like, well, it's about 130. I'm like, that's a serious problem. Serious problem. Yep. Serious problem. Mm -hmm. And over 40, you stop producing testosterone, whatever. We can get that's a whole nother show. But and if you don't take the supplements correctly, though, to fix yourself on that and you abuse them or you take them wrong, it can do the reverse effect and right. it can take you down a d deeper, darker hole. So, but there is a lot of solutions out there. Mm -hmm. And then, but you're so right, man. Isolationism is, and then you then people turn to drugs. And I'll call so, um, you aren't alone, meaning you, the listener out there. You, anybody on the planet can email me anytime, and um, Birdman's the same way. Birdman at sonsoftheflag.org, bring it. You know, if we reached one person today, I'd be happy. And you're right, it is beyond veterans. And we, we I had breakfast with a gentleman this morning. We talked about um, kids, just the struggle today of what you can live in isolationism because you can be on your phone and be on Facebook and feel like you're interacting, but you aren't, you aren't part of a tribe then. And then really you're seeing who likes your post, and then it you can't – Comparison is the death of joy, right? Hmm. So we've got to get in a tribe of people that we care about. So, okay, we're going to progress forward here. What? Just a few questions. Well, hold on, we'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your family currently. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your, your life today with your family. Absolutely. Um, I was a single guy throughout my entire military career, had no ambitions of getting married, and now I'm married to one of the most wonderful women in the world. Her name is Vlada. She originally ranged from Latvia, Riga, Latvia. Um, she came here to America when she was 12 with her mother, and she was a professional dancer and now in fitness industry. And we got married a couple of years ago. I'm coming up on four years this year, and we have a three-year-old son named Caston, mm -hmm. and we have another baby due in less than a month, another boy. So, yeah, there's no time for mommy and daddy anymore. Now it's yeah. just kids, but it's the coolest thing in the world, and that right there has changed my life. And I'm going to tell you this right now, the hardest job in the world that destroys SEAL training and every other thing that's hard in life is being a, a parent. Mm. That is the hardest job in the world because it is forever. Yeah, so here's an interesting statement my brother taught me. Being a good parent is really hard. Being a bad parent is really easy. Sure. Making decisions that are difficult is really hard. Um, so I know your mother's been a big part of your story when yeah. I've seen you speak, and she's still living in Detroit. Is that right? Yep. She, yeah. Mom and dad live in Michigan, still running 100 miles an hour, working, and Coming out as much as they can to see the babies. We go out there as much as we can. 
Yeah, I mean, I love my family. I mean, this was family's four. That's the tribe, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you this one. I'll, I'll close my side on this. You know, I was at a police graduation. A buddy of mine got out of the Air Force, went and become a police officer. So I went to go watch him graduate. And there was a fire chief that got up on the stage. And if anybody knows the difference between the fire and the police as far as the love that they have for each other mm-hmm. or the lack of love that they have for each other, it's a super competition or competitive group. So I was wondering why this fire chief got up on stage. And he goes, I know, I'm the fire chief uh, at a police graduation. makes no sense, but I wanted to tell you something that just felt this in my heart. And he said, what you're doing now is you're signing up to go and do things that most won't. And you're signing up to risk your lives to where there's a chance that you will not come home. And doing it for people that you don't know and will never know. So I say to you, when you're home, when you have kids and a family, get up off the couch and get down on the ground and play with your kids. Fully ingrain yourself and like to your point, and there's a difference between being a parent and really, really parenting that child. You have to fully embrace yourself. And so at the end of the day, when I'm exhausted mentally because of work, I come home, I turn on the jets to just go with my son until there's nothing left. And the second his eyes roll back into the back of his head, I'm following suit and I'm hitting the bed. I give my wife a kiss. We both pass out together and that's it. Mm. That right there is a full day's work. Okay, one last piece of parent advice. My sister Debbie, who's awesome, very tough woman, I was saying I'm tired all the time and the kids are little and she just looked at me and goes, you're going to be tired for the next 18 years. Deal with it. (laughs) And you just are. I mean, is it better that I have an 18-year-old girl that I have to set my alarm for her curfew at one, right? You know, baby, you never... It never ends. It never ends. So, okay, speaking of 17, 18-year-old kids, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? Uh, I would tell myself to take advice. I would listen to my peers and my um, elders more than I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasted so much time to finally get my act together. And if you could just stop and listen to the people around you who are giving you solid work, you will be so much further ahead in life. I smile because I give my son advice. We have a very, very strong relationship. But he didn't want to do a few things as of recently. And I said, Wayne, this is not some conspiracy that parents have to like send you down the wrong path. That's right. <laughs> I said, do you think I'm lying? I said, I am only on this earth to make your life better. Yeah, that's and right. And so anything I tell you is for your good. It, but it, you know, that doesn't compute. You're dealing with a 16-year-old. Yeah, but exactly. um, I have to go back because... I'm real big on people's narratives and distinctly two people spoke into your life. Your psychology teacher that was a Marine. That's right. And then the friend that they said, put that beer down and, you know, get it together. Simple statements can change the arc of people's lives. Um, I talk about Dr. Ben Carson on my first show that one teacher said, you're smarter than you think you are and you're good at science. He was in the abject projects of Detroit, I believe it may have been Chicago, and ends up being the head of John Hopkins Hospital, right? Right. His kid was failing every subject. He was self-abusive. But one person spoke into him. And and that's what I would encourage listeners, and you alluded to it earlier, you know, speak into somebody's life. That's right. You have the opportunity to change lives. Okay, so I love the Fast Five. Um, it can be a word. It can be a sentence. I did this to myself, and so it can be hard. Um, but I just love kind of the spontaneity of it. So... We're going to run through faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances, and you can be as brief or as long as you'd like. Faith. 
And the question is... Just what is that, you know, what, what comes to mind oh, immediately? got it. We're doing... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to just... There is no question. I mean, the question is the word. Okay. So, so faith. Faith is the ultimate in everything. Without faith, you have nothing. Love it. Family. The second strongest piece in your life, and if you don't take care of your family, you'll you'll pay for it later. Uh, but the greatest part, I think it's the best thing you have physically living on the earth. Mm. Friends? It's your backup. They're your backup. They're your sounding board. They're your tribe for when you need it most. Fitness? Got to have it. Got to keep moving. You stop, you die. Finances? Very important, and when you get very successful, become very successful, give me a call and teach me how. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll help you manage the money. That's perfect. <laughs> so, man, I love having you on. And Kevin always knows this. I look at this, and I'm like, an hour and 15 minutes, but I want to go more. So, but I think that's it. Well, important, though, give us, so Bird's Eye View Project, they can Google it, they can find it. Sons of Flags, same thing, just website. Yep, so in order to find us, Sons of the Flag, it's sonsoftheflag.org. And for Bird's Eye View Project, it is birdseyeviewproject.org. So they're both charities. Um, go check them out. You definitely need to learn about them because you just knowing about them could change somebody's life directing somebody to us. I challenge one listener to go jump out of a plane with the Dallas group. Bring it. Come on, somebody out there, do it. One, um, Two, if people want to get involved in the nonprofit, we, we have spaces where somebody could do something. So find us and we'll put you to work. So I want to say God bless you. Ryan Birdman Parrot, thank you for being my guest today. I love you, brother. Love you. Love you.